VegCast 97 is out. VegCast. Out of doors and out of the box. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, VegCast is back at you again with another full menu for the second podcast in February. And... This time around, we're going out, out of doors and outside the box. As I said, we're going to be thinking about humans' relationship with animals and talking about humans' relationship with animals uh, in kind of a big-picture framework, uh, a little bit outside of the uh, normal parameters in which we discuss this. It's something that I think a lot of vegans and vegetarians will be interested in. We're talking to Lee Hall today, uh, the author of On Their Own Terms, and uh, we actually recorded this at uh, a location in Mount Airy in Philadelphia inside the city limits where coyotes have been spotted, and we'll talk about that as well. Uh, we'll also hear from a new artist, a new-to-VegCast artist, but not new to the many uh, people worldwide who are familiar with him, and that is Zach, a single-named music artist, uh, I guess along the lines of Prince, Madonna, and that, uh, but uh, some interesting music from him, and we will also, of course, have a science fact this one about new benefits that have been found for the consumption of fiber. So, as always, I exhort you to sit back, relax, and crank up your MP3 player as we deliver this 97th... Okay, around the first of this year, there were a spate of news stories about mass animal deaths that were occurring in various locales, uh, many of them mysterious, why birds would just fall out of the sky, fish by the thousands would just wash up on shore, and uh, some of those mysteries have yet to be fully explained, although the news stories did tend to say, well, animal deaths, mass animal deaths like this are not as uncommon as people might believe. Um, and as a follow-up, a story that did not seem to get as much notice is that one of these incidents in South Dakota, uh, the USDA uh, finally came forward and took responsibility for and said, yes, those birds, uh, those thousands of birds that died in that case uh, were intentionally poisoned by the uh, United States Department of Agriculture using our tax dollars because they were uh, interfering with feed for livestock and uh, they were uh, their interest in living, of course, was coming up against the interest of the livestock owner in making uh, exactly the profit that they wanted to. So in that equation, where the animals' lives were being weighed against increased profit, uh, the increased profit won, and uh, the animals had to die. And this uh, put me to thinking about the work of Lee Hall, especially recently as uh, she has concentrated on our relationship to animals in the wild and to animals as a general class uh, on the planet rather than what we normally focus on, which is the animals that we have already domesticated and, uh, and or those that are specifically uh, in a situation like fish that are caught uh, in the ocean for food 
that are part of a specific system, and she uh, wants us to look a little wider and expand our scope of how we think of that. And uh, so right now we're going to go to our interview with Lee Hall. All right, right now we are speaking with Lee Hall, the author of On Their Own Terms, Bring Animal Rights Philosophy Down to Earth. Lee, welcome to VegCast. Thank you, Vance. Glad I, to be here at VegCast on this beautiful, windy day. Yes, we had uh, quite a lull here just within the last five minutes, and now that we've started talking, it's picking back up again. But uh, we're starting this out anyway, out of doors uh, here at uh, the Mount Airy train station, which is also the location of Walker Crooked Mile Books. We're kind of outdoors uh, in, a, in an homage to a lot of the theme of the book, which uh, has to do with, with the untamed. And we're certainly getting some untamed weather now. It's a, it's a beautiful day, but it is uh, pretty windy. Um, so can you just very briefly talk about how what the untamed aspect, how that has to do with the uh, the way that you're rephrasing or revisioning of uh, animal rights, how that fits in. I think that people have not people who look into animal rights, people who are interested in animal rights, have missed an important distinction, and that's that animal rights will come to animals. We can envision animal rights for animals who are untamed, and that is what animal rights at its best is. The idea, the respect that other animals of this planet could, we could take our hands off their necks and that they could live autonomously in their own communities. They're not only specific individuals, they are individuals, but they also interact with other individuals and they form communities in their own ways. And this, I think, has been largely missed. I think that people have thought, well, animal rights is this all-purpose sort of idea where every animal could have rights. And instead of getting, say, rights for two hours, the idea would be challenging our bringing the or cows, right? Challenging in the first place are bringing them into situations in which we have control over them. And bringing the focus of animal rights to animals who could actually have significant, meaningful rights. And that's the right to live on their terms and not ours. Okay. Well, the flip side of that, um, and one of the things that makes your argument provocative, is that uh, you basically say that the, the concept of animal rights is meaningless for domesticated animals because they've already been, they've already been deprived of their rights before being brought into existence. And to some people, um, and I, it, I have to admit this is probably the case with myself before I had, you know, when I just heard a little bit of your philosophy and before I'd read the whole book and got everything, how you put together, it almost uh, can strike some people that you're kind of giving short shrift to domesticated animals who comprise so many millions of the animals that whose rights we are abusing or who, whom we're exploiting. Um, and that you're kind of saying, forget about that, and let's concentrate on this other aspect. And, uh, how do you, how would you respond to somebody that kind of was just coming into that and saying that? Yeah, um, the animals we we have domesticated have interests, and I want to make it clear, and I go through this carefully in the book, 
that this does not mean, the, the idea that animal rights is for untamed animals, undomesticated animals, does not mean we neglect animals who are brought into domesticated lives. And that brings us to the taking back of the word welfare. That for these animals whom we respect, whom we love, we live with these animals, we know these animals, um, or they're the animals who are living on, on farms. Um, two kinds of domesticated animals. Uh, let's start with the ones we love. Um, we continue to care for them. We have sanctuaries or we make our home a sanctuary for them, many of us, and we know them as persons. So the question then becomes, uh, what can I do to respect a horse, a, a, a cat, a dog? Um, and could that mean, should we be challenging ourselves to ask, to, to ask society why we have brought wild cats and wolves and free living horses into situations through selective breeding in which they depend on this on us that's not a disrespectful question it's a respectful question because we're saying should we as human community have been so presumptuous to think that we're making their lives so much better because they depend on us and that's a question that's a challenge but it's not meant to disrespect uh, animals who are domesticated animals who are dependent and therefore what the book asks to do is take back this word welfare because for them we care about their well-being and that's really the, the the meaning that most of the general public associates with the word welfare so rather than disparaging the idea of welfare or welfareism let's say i as an animal rights person as an animal advocate also care about the well-being and thus the welfare of animals what we don't want to do and I think the abolitionists have got this right, is that we don't want to um, assume that we're doing something good for animals and farms by, say, how would Tom Reagan put it, tidying up the tyranny. Uh, uh, as Reagan, who, who wrote um, The Case for Animal Rights, which came out, I believe, in 1983, uh, said, the point is to end the tyranny over other animals, not to make our tyranny more humane. As far as the ones who are pets, as far as the ones who are cast-off pets, um, what we're doing is we're not uh, going to pet shops, we're not bringing them into existence, but we're looking after them, and we care about them deeply. I personally live with cats, and uh, I see them as persons. Right. Uh, so. I mean, everybody, I think, who lives with animal sees them as persons, it's just that they tend not to make the connection that these other animals, whom there are many more of, uh, also should logically be seen as persons. And so uh, I think most people are fine when applying the concept of welfare to pets or companion animals or whatever term, I mean, you reject that term also, but uh, the, the animals that live with us in our homes, but it's harder for them to to see how to how to treat the animals or what to do about the animals that are being raised for food or for resources, let's say. Right, and in that case, we're also not neglecting them. 
but the very best thing we can do for them is to stop bringing them into our lives as consumer items. So the best thing we can do for a farm animal is not to buy the products of the farm. The best thing we could do for an animal who's caught up in animal agribusiness is to conscientiously object to that system and therefore withdrawing, becoming a vegan, uh, not buying animal products becomes the kindest possible thing we can do. Uh, this isn't, this doesn't mean that people who are trying to give, trying to, to find a way to press animal agribusiness uh, to not be as hideous uh, as it is. It's not to say that um, that should be disparaged, um, but there are many groups working on it, and on the whole, there are few groups working on veganism. And the question, of course, becomes, and this isn't a new question, people who have wanted to abolish the use of animals or the status of animals as property, who are called abolitionists, have long said, well, if you continue to uh, work to ameliorate the conditions in the farm, what you're doing is you are extending, you are perpetuating the idea because you're sort of pretending in a way uh, people will see you as pretending that somehow this tyranny can be more humane, that can be carried out humanely, and we know it can't. Right. At the end is death. Well, what, one of the uh, aspects of your theory that uh, I find particularly resonant is uh, re-envisioning re and re recasting the whole of humanity as just um, another species on the planet, another community of animals that happens to be in a uh, disproportionate kind of relationship with the other species. Um, so right now we're dominating the, the planet both on an individual level with individual animals and on an environmental level uh, on several levels. And so obviously the position is that that needs to be scaled way back. Um, a kind of a devil's advocate question is how far would we logically go to scale that back because if we are animals who are living with other animals and sharing the planet with them at what point do we say and we know that we've already far exceeded this but at what point do we say this is you know this is too far this is more than our our <laughs> species deserves to have versus you know, the fact that animals do share, they do fight over uh, different resources and different land even. I mean, if you have the situation with beavers building a dam, that, you know, that thing that they do is going to inconvenience some other animals here or there. We're, I'm obviously, again, I have to say, I realize that we're way beyond this line, but let's say, hypothetically, if we did start scaling it back, at what point would it be enough? Isn't that an interesting question? And that brings up why one of the reasons why the animal rights books to date need to be, we need to move beyond them because we are living right now, we're approaching 7 billion people and it is becoming clear that what we have done is fundamentally altered through, through these domineering behaviors. We have fundamentally altered um, the way our climate is going and, the, and certainly uh, we have pushed the sixth great extinction to a point where 
far beyond the kind of extinctions we have had naturally, far beyond, um, much faster rate. This is a, a, a severe kind of extinction that's not in a, in a that's happening in a way none others have have happened before. Is animal rights theory and activism taking into account the, this issue, the, the context we live in today? And when we start thinking about, well, you know, have we overstepped? Obviously, we have overstepped. Uh, what are we asking people to do about this now? We're bringing in questions about population that needs to be asked. Um, it was unpopular for a while to ask it in social justice groups because it was associated with racist uh, views, but it need not be, it should not be. This is a human question, not a question of what, what kinds of people should not be re reproducing. It's about homo sapiens and what do we do about this? And you know, uh, Donald Watson, who founded the Vegan Society in the 1940s, at that point was saying, you know, we've got two billion people on the planet. We have exceeded our boundaries. So when you talk about seven billion and, you know, two billion right. was a lot. Um, I think that gives you some idea of what a big challenge this is. It is a big challenge, but is there, um, I mean, is there, can you even envision some point that we could get, and this kind of goes to one of the objections that you address in where it's a chapter where you talk about different objections. Um, can you even envision a human society where we have gotten back to anywhere near <laughs> our actual rightful place? And what would that place be? Well, uh, certainly it would entail at this point asking for the habitats that Fairmount Park and Valley Forge Park and so forth not to be further encroached upon. I mean, we can start there. And that's a lot of what we're doing in everyday activism. We're saying, you know, we are asking that people don't shoot the deer. We're asking that people stop talking about what kinds of non-lethal management solutions, you know, in management speak, we hear a lot about, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't shoot them, but we should try something more humane. So let's do birth control or something like this. And these are some of the challenges the book brings up, because before this, um, animal rights books did not challenge that. They were all right because they didn't go into this idea of animal rights living in their own on their own terms too much. And um, they didn't think about animals who live in habitat too much. The majority of the focus of animal rights books has, where they actually talk in detail about what kind of campaigns you do, um, haven't gone outside, you know, and dealt with um, where this is happening. So to the extent that, that animal rights, even abolitionists, deal with deer, they are amenable to this argument that, all right, well, let's do birth control because it's, it's better than hunting. It's, it's not uh, such a terrible violation. And um, this book, and this is part of Friends of Animals, I, being that I, uh, I work, I've worked with Friends of Animals now for about a decade, and I have learned um, how to push back by actual activism, by actual advocacy working with a nonprofit group. And I have learned not to accept these humane myths. And one of them is that 
we should uh, control deer by non-lethal methods. And the reason is that if we keep one reason, there are a number of reasons. One, it's not that humane when you actually look into it, in, in my opinion. Um, but a big reason that you would question that would be, well, if we don't question it, then when do they stop widening the Pennsylvania Turnpike? Um, when do we stop building the mansions? When do we think about birth control for ourselves? I mean, why is it that we are imposing these ideas of birth control on other species? Um, but we're not, so that goes to the question, what are we doing right now to push back in our day-to-day -day advocacy against this constant encroachment? And that's part of it. The idea that no, you can't kill them, you cannot put contraceptive you cannot test contraceptives or impose now surgical sterilization is a big thing in Maryland with the activists in Maryland and the activists in New Jersey are saying isn't wonderful that Maryland activists are getting the surgical steril sterilization for deer how is that wonderful how is that wonderful I mean first it's pushing deer aside it's allowing us not to think about how we have taken when we continue to take habitat and second it puts coyotes out of a job right and we should point out we're right here at a place where coyotes have actually uh, been seen and we're still you know we're within Philadelphia uh, and that's that's part of the the concept we're kind of at we keep on pushing our borders out uh, into animals territory and then when they show up in our territory we're we're all we get up in arms um, and uh, obviously you would prefer that the deer population be managed naturally by coyotes and by their own uh, you know internal systems and so forth but it, it comes back to that that kind of uh, you know, idealist versus practical objection that, for example, in the in the in terms of food animals, there's that concept. Well, wouldn't it be nice if everybody went vegan? But they're not, so we have to do what we can now. And we've talked about that as kind of being uh, erroneous. And I think it's it's easy to see that as erroneous because what we can do now and the effect that it's possibly going to have on this huge number of animals is so minimal it's so negligible when compared with the you know the nightmare that their lives are no matter what we do they're not going to be put up in plush hotels or put up in plush sanctuaries or whatever that that are going to see to their every need so the actual changes that we're potentially fighting for are not really meaningful when compared with the stable situation of exploitation. With the deer, you have a much more poignant uh, kind of situation where you have people who have violence at their disposal and are threatening to deploy it. And um, I talked to Priscilla Farrell, uh, as VegCast listeners will recall, a couple years ago, and we talked about the Valley Forge situation and the intent to uh, file a lawsuit and that was done and it was a great victory while it lasted now it seems that that you know that put off this situation but now they're going in to shoot the deer and the question becomes at what point does this rejection of uh, non-lethal alternatives 
what, what, how does that, uh, at what point does it become another thing of holding on to an ideal while actual, you know, these actual deer, which would not necessarily have died, are, are potentially going to die? Okay. Um, oh, there's so, kind of a long question. That's wasn't a it? rich one. That's a rich <laughs> one. Um, very rich. Many many tangents we could go. <laughs> but um, as far as when we went in and sued, this is Friends of Animals in a local group called Care, Compassion for Animals, Respect for the Environment, built, uh, based in Westchester. And of course, Chester County is one of the two counties. Uh, where Valley Forge is. They've got Montgomery County and Chester County. So you've got this local group and then you've got an international group. Together we were the plaintiffs in the case. So we said, um, no, um, hands off the deer. You didn't, one thing that they didn't do was think about the coyotes who live in the park and how they could assist those coyotes to thrive, uh, at least not um, artificially suppress their numbers. There's a Apparently a den in Valley Forge Park. Cubs have been spotted there, uh, which is significant. So you've got animals there. You've got, biologically speaking, natural predators. Mm -hmm. um, now, had we gone in and said, let's do birth control, please, let's at least do birth control. Let's at least do that. Don't kill them to stave off the killing. Well, we, the killing was pretty set. They were pretty set on doing that. And there were advocates who said, Let, can you please do this birth control. And what happened is that the park said, all right, we'll compromise with the animal rights activists. This, and this is, they're talking about other groups, groups who had pushed birth control. And they said, we'll compromise with the animal rights activists. What we'll do is we'll kill them, we'll shoot them for four years so that the number goes down at the time it was 1,023 deer. And they said, we'll shoot them for four years and we'll keep doing it until there are about 165 to 185 deer in the park. That's the number that they had settled on. They have this idea, like Disney, that there's a certain amount of animals who are attractive and then everybody right. else has got to go, all right? And they said, and at the end of that four years, any of the survivors, if there's a approved, effective birth control, we, we're comfortable with them, we'll put it, we'll, we'll impose that on them, you see, we, we did. They brought that I, that that argument of birth control into their killing plan, which sure. is what they will typically do. As soon as an advocacy group says, "Why don't you do birth control?" What they have done is they've conceded the argument that there are too many deer. Why should we do that? There are not too many deer in Valley Forge Park. There are. If there were at that time. 1,023 deer. What's the number of deer who should be living in Valley Forge Park? I would say it's approximately 1,023 deer. And we were not going to concede that. Now, we stopped it for, we held it off for last winter. This, this right before the 1st of November, you know, when they, the plan is to start killing. This is a November to March thing that, that, that they do. Mm -hmm. Just before that, on October 27th of this past year, 2010, the district court judge decided in favor of the, of the park service and against us. That meant we had no time, really, to do anything about it. They started shooting immediately, about the 1st of November, I think on the 1st of November. Bizarrely enough, World Vegan Day. So then what do we do? 
this is part of the process. It's difficult, it's hurtful, it's painful. Um, but this is what happens when you're standing your ground. We now need to go to the appeals court, which we are doing. We hope to be heard soon. Meanwhile, this winter has been horrifying, horrifying. Um, when we get in, we are going to present the case, and, and it, we're still here. Um, it may take time to stop this, but our mission is to, ha to have it set aside because they didn't look at all their alternatives. They didn't look at the natural option. To point that out, to have the discussion, the public discussion about coyotes, because we need this discussion. Yes, they're here. Greg, who owns uh, co-owns Walk a Crooked Mile Books, where we are here at the Mount Airy train station, has seen coyotes right here. I have seen them in this area. I have seen one. Um, so we know they're here. And then once uh, we realized that the process by which they started this killing was flawed, was illegal, then we're asking them to put the plan aside for good. This is part of the pain that you go through when you stand up to people who kill wolves, who kill coyotes, who kill deer, etc. This is just what activism is like. It's the long haul. All right. Okay. Um, we're kind of over our regular time, but part of that is there's just uh, a lot to talk about, and uh, I keep asking long, convoluted questions. <laughs> but I want to ask one more, um, which gets at kind of uh, the the fundamental concept of animal rights, which, as you may recall, I have a an issue with. Um, and th as you're talking about this, you're talking about these legal remedies um, where we're going to, you know, approach uh, human society and point out that it's out of balance even with its own uh, precepts and its own uh, legally uh, prescribed values, and in some sense we're, we're trying to push those, stretch those values to where they should be ethically or uh, make the law more consistent with what it seems to be supposed to do as set up by humans. Um, and in terms of phrasing this concept of our relationship to animals as animal rights, um, I have as you know, the problem that I think that it puts our relationship still and our obligations to animals in a framework which is not really reflective of our natural relationship to it. It says that we have come up with this system and this uh, concept, this paradigm of rights, and we are now going to kind of throw it like a blanket out over the animals as well uh, when animals do not want or need rights particularly and uh, you know it, it I think that to some extent that gets to why I think the phrase animal rights is a problem for uh, a lot of non-vegans a lot of people who are just approaching it because it's used it, I believe it, it's kind of equivocated when we use it out in public we use that phrase because it hits a, a button that says we want you to recognize that these animals have intrinsic value and have intrinsic interests, that they possess these rights that we are bound to respect. But then when we talk about it among ourselves, we tend to say, well, we're really only looking at rights as a tool to, uh, to kind of 
capture how we should try to protect animals' interests, which there's no, you know, there's no argument whether animals have interests. So is there, is there some way that, uh, I mean, you continued to go through the whole thing about animal rights. Um, is there some way that, that, that you think that may uh, contribute to one of the things that you, you and many of us complain about is that people just kind of throw around the term animal rights and don't, you know, they use it to apply to animal groups that really don't even subscribe to anything like abolitionism or anything like what we would call animal rights when we use it among ourselves. So how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you respond to that? Your discomfort resonates with me, actually. Uh, when I started thinking about writing this book, one of the things that made me think about writing this book um, was coming across an essay by Professor Catherine McKinnon, who's the feminist legal scholar. Uh, the essay asked, that was called Of Mice and Men, a feminist fragment on animal rights. And the essay asked if the primary model of animal rights thinking to date hasn't missed animals on their own terms. And I think that's what you're bringing up here. Um, they're not subscribing to this philosophy or to this regime of rights that we have um, constructed. We have constructed this idea of rights. We all have interests and certainly animals have interests. Uh, Maybe the question needs to be more often in, in public as well as in our circles turned around so that the question becomes, do we have the right, right. to manipulate them? Do we have the right to own them? Do we have the right to dominate them in the first place? Do we have the right to domesticate them, decide what's in their best interest, etc., etc.? So I think animal rights, I think what you're getting at is something that I get where you're going with that. Um, it's got to be about them and not what we think is best for them because it's been best for us. Right. And that can't work anyway when it comes to a cow. Right. And then we go through that in the book. What what do you think? What do you do when it comes to a cow? And and I go into that in the book. But this is in, it's interesting and it's important to separate animals who um, will not have meaningful rights and animals who will, if we can use the term animal rights to mean the idea of thriving and of living the way they what is important for them, their focus, which is not something we can even always articulate. Right. Okay. All right, well, we got to wrap this up, but I just wanted to be sure that we do uh, get in a word about Walker Crooked Mile Books because uh, you were in there earlier and found out that they they have a sale going on through February. Is that what was the particulars of that? Yes. We're here at Mount Airy train station. Um, Walker Crooked Mile Books is here as part of the train station. And all February they have a 30% off thingy. So come on over because this is our independent bookshop. And we should support independent bookshops. And also, they have had, on their own terms, they've had a book talk that I've come and done, and they've been so generous um, to open the bookshop up to have this discussion with the community. So we wanted to come back here and honor them. Right. We should remember that we should uh, 
do what we can to support the the positive structures within our own community and society while not necessarily trying to impose those structures where they they don't belong. Is that fair? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Lee Hall, uh, thank you very much for talking with us. I'm glad we didn't get totally bowled over by the wind here. Uh, and I wish you the best, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at Summerfest. Yes, indeed. Yes? All right, Absolutely. great. Well, thanks for talking with us on VegCast.
Oh, yeah, that is Zach with some love. And, uh, of course, you can go to our show notes and find out more about Zach and where to get Zach's music. Uh, but right now, as we're getting kind of late, I'm going to rush right into the science. Our science fact for VegCast 97 is study more fiber longer life. This is from the state, but it's an Associated Press story. It goes as follows. Eat more fiber and you just may live longer. That's the message from the largest study of its kind to find a link between high fiber diets and lower risks of death, not only from heart disease, but from infectious and respiratory illnesses as well. The government study also ties fiber with a lower risk of cancer deaths in men, but not women, possibly because men are more likely to die from cancers related to diet, like cancers of the esophagus. And it finds the overall benefit to be strongest for diets high in fiber from grains. Most Americans aren't getting enough roughage in their diets. The average American eats only about 15 grams of fiber each day, much less than the current daily recommendations of 25 grams for women and 38 grams for men, or 14 grams per 1,000 calories. For example, a slice of whole wheat bread contains 2 to 4 grams of fiber. In the new study, the people who met the guidelines were less likely to die during a 9-year follow-up period. The men and women who ate the highest amount of fiber were 22% less likely to die from any cause compared to those who ate the lowest amount, said lead author Dr. Yik Young Park of the National Cancer Institute. Study appearing in Monday's Archives of Internal Medicine included more than 388,000 adults ages 50 to 71 who participated in a diet and health study conducted by the National Institutes of Health and AARP. And it did point out that the highest benefit in this area of benefits uh, was coming from grains, from fiber in grains. Uh, that, I should point out, does not mean that there's not benefits in fiber of all kinds in plant foods. And that takes us to a second point, which is that that is where fiber or roughage is. It's in whole plant foods. And uh, this is a perfect example of how basic nutritional information just does not get out to the public because it doesn't get to the journalists who are responsible for conveying these things, writing up these studies and so forth, um, that fiber is only found in plant foods and uh, you can't eat a plant food, a whole plant food, without getting some fiber. Obviously, once you start breaking them up, juicing them, and so forth, you start to lose that. But it's still a very basic and helpful equation when you're mentioning the benefit of fiber and diet and people eating in order to improve their health. It would seem that a logical thing to say was if you want to seek out foods with fiber, here's a simple rule. Fiber is found in whole plant foods. There is, uh, you know, a certain amount and a certain kind in grains. There's other amounts and kinds in other plant foods, but you can't go wrong eating plants as long as you're looking fiber. You can and do go wrong if you ever look for fiber in any animal products because it's not there. So anytime you choose to eat an animal product, you're choosing to go without fiber intake uh, at that point. It's just a simple thing that could be said, but uh, it's not in mainstream write-ups. This is just, I'm picking this basically... Uh, as to pick on as a scapegoat for the entire uh, phenomenon. And depending on how you look at it, it's either funny or a cause for depression that uh, 
Uh, this basic information just is not to be found in these basic write-ups that are supposedly helping to convey basic information to the public. Uh, it's not found there and yet is found here instead on the science fact. All right, we're late. we got to get out of here. But I did want to mention uh, something that I didn't in interviewing Lee, that uh, you should pick up a copy of On Their Own Terms. It is not just a book of philosophy but it is asking a lot of questions, and she encourages you to ask questions of yourself and your own beliefs. And it actually has a kind of workbook area where that helps you to uh, work through uh, what you believe and what, why and uh, what you might want to do about that. And uh, it's something that I wanted to bring up in the interview and forgot, so I wanted to shoehorn that in now before we get out of here. All right, that is going to do it for VegCast 97 and for February uh, 2011. For VegCast, I want to thank Lee Hall for talking with me about uh, On Their Own Terms and for braving the uh, cold and windy weather, even though it was a beautiful day. And remember to stop in at Walk a Crooked Mile Books if you get a chance uh, in the next day or so. I also want to thank Zach for sending us a track to play. And I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing. Until next time, please get out there and live like you mean it. <laughs>